tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We are going into the home stretch of the general election, which is Tuesday. The candidates are working hard to get out the vote. A rally for a gubernatorial Republican candidate, Duke Iona, drew over 300 people to McKinley High School's cafeteria last night. Iona, a former judge, hit on what he called the unprecedented corruption in government. I've never seen, I've never seen an elected prosecutor indicted. I've never seen a chief of police in jail. I've never seen his wife, who was a deputy prosecutor, respected deputy prosecutor, also in jail. I've never seen a state representative and a state senator at the same time in jail for campaign spending violations. We've never seen one of two of the biggest Democrat contributors indicted for campaign contribution violations. Have you seen now also the legal representative, the legal attorney for a sitting mayor indicted? The managing director, second in command for a elected mayor indicted? Have you seen officials who give permits in jail and indicted? Where have you seen that before? And why does that happen? I submit to you, it's not about having more ethic classes. It's not about trying to legislate behavior and morality. It's because when you have a one-party domination that we've had for the last 60 years, it breeds corruption and it breeds abuse. And that's why we are all right now. In contrast, two weeks ago, Democratic contender Josh Green took a softer stance in a speech at the Mohea Pavilion in Hilo, stressing the start of his advocacy for improved public health services and a desire to serve. He says the turning point for him was in 2019 when he organized a medical mission to Samoa in three days to help fight a measles outbreak. Green says they were able to vaccinate more than 36,000 people. That was the moment. That was the moment I knew that anything was possible if we were gonna take on the homeless challenge, it is possible for Sylvia and I, with these extraordinary teammates to take that on, or the housing crisis, or the affordability crisis. All of these challenges seem so much more manageable when you've gone through something like that and you've seen achievement and possibility purely from volunteers, purely from people with aloha. And who would have thought, but one month later, after we got back from Samoa, a new virus would break out called coronavirus, COVID. And the rest of that story, as you know, was shared by, uh, very eloquently by our governor, Governor Abercrombie, where because of you and the sacrifices you made and our healthcare heroes made, Hawaii had the second lowest rate of COVID in the country and the second lowest death rate of all the states in America. And as I finish, I will just say this. These are the possibilities that exist. We can take on the large challenges. We can see, as Democrats, how we need to lead. It's up to us. This morning, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green joined us in our studios to talk about the sprint to the finish. He says he's not departing from his strategy. The focus really is on housing, if someone wants to be honest about what the people want. Housing, dealing with homelessness, these are the crises that people have faced. As a physician, I've also seen people's struggles with addiction. We saw a lot of additional addiction and depression because of isolation, COVID. That's something important to me. When I was uh, lieutenant governor in the first two years, we were taking on the opioid crisis also and as a senator. So uh, that was something that was very important. Hawaii has the lowest 
uh, opioid fatalities in the country traditionally. Uh, but meth, of course, is a problem. Right. The headlines today that we're still dealing with that, we're dealing with fentanyl. I understand that our first responders are going to go be, be going through fentanyl training yes. uh, next week. Yes, I'm a big proponent of naloxone. You know, the ER doctor and me will serve us well, I hope, if I'm chosen as governor. Uh, this is a big distinction between me and my opponent. He was tasked with dealing with methamphetamine, if you recall, back 20 years ago when he was serving as lieutenant governor and nothing really happened. So we will take it a lot more seriously and I will use the opioid settlement funds, which we've already talked to the feds, to use that uh, to also address methamphetamine. In the legislature, I passed bills to decrease the capacity to build meth, to create meth, dealing with Sudafed and some of the chemicals that go into that. So I'll use a science-based approach, but mostly what you're talking about now is how do you look at law enforcement? How do you look at justice reform? People who are addicted aren't really the God, they should not be the focus. People who are addicted, uh, instead of being fully incarcerated, they should be getting rehabilitation, treatment. They should be getting Suboxone, which is a, a medicine we can use as physicians to get people off the drugs. Instead of putting people in jail for 200 plus dollars a day and you know tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, we need to get them better. But meth is the source of most of our crime, uh, both violent and uh, burglaries. And it's got to be stopped. So that's going to be a focus. I will put special task force group from the attorney general's office on this challenge. And, you know, we just had your running mate, Sylvia Luke, in, and she was talking about how you folks have a good relationship and that you're working in step on, on some of these issues and had talked about some of the additional responsibilities that she might take on you yeah. know, as lieutenant governor. Absolutely. Sylvia and I have been friends since 2004. She's like the sister I never had. I have a younger brother. And she's a, she's a strong-willed, very competent person. She is a star to have on my team. I'm hoping that Sylvia will take on early education, pre-K. Uh, that's a ton of our children, right? You're talking about uh, basically 18,000 uh, three-year-olds and 18,000 four-year-olds that need to be get educated. You get a seven-to-one-dollar dollars uh, return on investment for every buck that you put in there. So it's really good because then kids read better. They advance through early education much more smoothly. They're much more likely to go to college, and that helps our economy. This is a really interesting situation because Sylvia is so strong, I can ask her to take on large roles, that broadband technology, and know that she will take projects that she championed as the finance chair and move them into uh, kind of a full fruition mode in her lieutenant governor job. And no one is probably more acquainted with how to make that LG job something um, potent than I am because, as we all saw, it was important to actually look at the lieutenant governor job as a real part of government. That's what happened with COVID. You know, and there are critics who say that this administration fell down on its communication during this crisis, this economic and health crisis. How do you hope to get beyond that? Well, I think everyone saw me as the primary communicator, and we had hundreds of thousands of people decide that they would uh, view my whiteboard and our updates as their main source of information. It was an honor to do that. And I will take that to the next level. We intend to do a two-minute whiteboard or a two-minute talk story from me as governor if we're chosen, if I'm selected uh, with Sylvia, to update people on all sorts of issues quickly, efficiently. Actually, if you ask people out there in the street what they liked most about me, it was the communications. It happens that I was lieutenant governor communicating. Uh, that's just my nature. Uh, much kudos to the governor for being a wartime governor during COVID. That was very difficult during a pandemic. Uh, but there was a lot to communicate, and needless to say, I was one of those main people. You talked about Sylvia Luke. How do you reconcile the fact that the unions that supported you 
lobbied hard to get her to lose. I think there might have been one, but uh, think of it in these terms. Same thing happens every every election. Uh, in 2018, two of the main unions who have had always supported me before and have supported me since went with Senator Takuda at the time, now soon to be Congresswoman Takuda, if, if the voters make that choice, which I certainly support. And it's just one of those things. Sometimes you're not the top choice, but I've already made some of the motions to get people to be at peace in our team. We're really one family, and that's what's important. Uh, not everyone's going to be their first choice. For example, some unions went with my opponents and went with Sylvia, and then after the primary, they endorsed me. And so this happens all the time. Also, in our areas of expertise, we'll be focused on who are going to be the allies that can help us get projects done. We're going to be very, I think, results-oriented, Sylvia and I, and that's what people want. They don't want this kind of inside politics rancor, honestly, and we have to put that behind ourselves. I had very good advice from one of my senior advisors in 2018 saying, hey, look, the future's still out there for you. Do not hold a grudge against those who might not have had uh, you as their top choice. And it really ended up going very well for me later because those very same groups were right there by my side through the primary and the general. And and frankly, a lot of people have rallied behind us because I didn't hold that grudge. And I, you know, I'm really proud of Sylvia, how she carried herself in spite of quite a, you know, kind of fiery primary time. And she's just doing super. But she is like a sister to me. And, you know, we're going to be a dynamic team if the people choose us on Tuesday. What do you say to voters who might still be concerned that you might be beholden to the unions and that might sway, you know, your decisions? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, we're hearing things about your cabinet. You know, so how do you navigate, you know, when the union wants uh, or is recommending a certain person for, for someone on your team? For me, these kind of discussions are about relationships across the board. I've had, my gosh, I mean, I've had thousands and thousands of supporters it turns out every single union but one endorsed me, and that is pretty extraordinary to see. I don't play favorites. I never have. People have never seen that from me before. I don't know why they think they would see that from me now. Will I have an extra focus on the health of our people? Of course. I'm a physician. Will I have an extra focus on housing? Of course, because I've been watching people wrestle with homelessness, and I actually spend time with people unlike some other people in, in the political realm. Uh, I didn't just come into this race in the last minute like our opponents. I've been thinking about this ever since we started dealing with the pandemic and the economic crisis that existed. So I take this very seriously. There's always going to be chatter. Uh, there will be haters out there, but I love them all the same. I mean, I really care about people. I want them to do well going forward. And we're all in this together. If we don't have enough housing inventory, whether people supported my team or didn't, they're still going to have the same challenges. Whether there's a homeless individual down someone's street, they're not going to be asking themselves whose political allies were behind Josh or Sylvia or the other ticket. They're going to say, what, what Calhali can we build? What services can we deliver? So I put that kind of political thing behind. I'm ready to lead. I'm excited about the prospects for our future. And I think coming out of COVID, we kind of have a blank canvas ahead of us. A lot of people are seeing this as a time for renewal, and that's what Sylvia and I will bring. You talk about housing. The big question, I think, that's out there is what happens with the stadium. The stadium authority has one more meeting, but it might be the clock will run out and the decision will be yours if you're the next governor. Uh, how do you plan to make that work if there isn't the component of an entertainment center and a stadium there? I'll build it. I'm going to build it either way. So whether I have to go forward with the budget that we have and the kind of prescriptive plan that has been put down, I'll do it. 
it's important that a stadium be built for a sophisticated state. I'll also pursue housing in parallel to the best of my ability. The infrastructure there will remain a question if we don't have a comprehensive plan, but there's also a lot of housing to be built along the rail, uh, TOD as it's described. There has to be housing built pretty much everywhere right now. So I'm excited. That will be one of our signature goals to build that stadium. In addition to that, we've also committed to 10,000 units in our first term. I'm meeting with development uh, folks, especially the nonprofit developers and people who are willing to build fully affordable housing at 100% whenever possible. All of these people are on my calendar almost every day because, well, I'll tell you this, even when I'm out sign waving, I've got people in my ear telling me how they're going to build housing, and I'm having meetings right then, too. So it's that important. All of these large questions in some ways had to be on the back burner because we were in the middle of a global pandemic that threatened the lives of our kupuna. Uh, but now we've emerged for the most part. And I've had a bird's eye view as lieutenant governor to really pick our top priorities. And that's what you've seen in our campaign, what Sylvia's talking about, what all my team is talking about. The stadium has been uh, obviously on people's minds, but more important than a stadium is housing and dealing with overdoses and people's health. Green says he met just yesterday with key financial players to prepare for any possible recession in 2023. He says he's looking for ways to blunt any economic setbacks so Hawaii can be in a better position to pay the bills and weather any rough times ahead. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering a variety of classes and creative experiences for youth and adults at its art school. Registration for winter session opens November 16th. More at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Leslie Shore, author of Listen to Succeed. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to identify and overcome barriers to effective listening. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Rollins is a musician and writer whose name evokes different things for different people. For some, he's the wild, high-energy lead singer of the 80s punk band Black Flag. For others, he's a spoken word artist, activist, and host of a weekly music show on the L.A. public radio station KCRW. The 61-year-old is currently on tour, sharing stories and reflections on life, politics, and humor. HPR's DJ, Mr. Nick, spoke to Rollins ahead of his three-night appearance at the Blue Note Hawaii. So you, you mentioned that growing old. I, I noticed that's a, it's become a reoccurring theme in a lot of your work. And I got to ask, is this you grappling with, you know, like the changing times or is this making light of it? Or Oh, I, I make fun of it, you know, because uh, I grew up, I'm 61. I've been in front of cameras 
and people have been recording my existence, uh, you know, in print, uh, on TV, etc., since I was 19. And not exactly growing up in public, but parking right next to that. And so I've been very aware of myself, not in a self-impressed kind of way. But, you know, <laughs> would you sign this? I'm like, oh, I had dark hair. So like, that must have, like, which president was that? Oh, yeah, Reagan, I actually had hair. And so I, I, my past is presented to me all the time. And so I'm very aware of aging. And I see it's just nothing but funny to me that when I get up, I can hear my body audibly pop and crack. And, you know, I, I'm in the gym six days a week. So I'm very aware of my physicality, my stamina, and how it diminishes. And that has given me, I always tell the audience, I said, you know, one day you'll be old like me, like not anytime soon, trust me. But, um, you're going to need some humor. So you just bring as much, you're going to need all the humor that you can bring on board. And so there's just kind of an awareness, having been young, middle-aged and, you know, getting AARP age now, that I, I can see at least three bags on the baseball diamond as I head towards home plate. And to take in a fairly wide view as a very aware that I'm being monitored person has informed uh, a lot of what kind of material I've been putting across on stage. And hopefully it's not like some old dad, you know, bring your galoshes, but it's just, um, <laughs> you really need to let women do what they need to do with their bodies. You really, really have to teach your kids not to, to uh, tease the gay kid or the trans kid or the autistic kid at school, we must do better. Like the, the it, things must improve with human interaction. Like you won't remember this phone call. You won't remember me on stage, uh, but on your deathbed decades from now, you will remember being six years old in the schoolyard and the exact words that were said to you that made you cry in humiliation. And that's how sensitive humans are and how easy it is to traumatize someone. And knowing that no one is all that tough, why don't we radically change how we comport ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and this is a thing I've been thinking about really hard uh, for at least a decade and trying to really put that into action in my own life. And I don't go on stage and instruct people. It's not for me, a, a mere high school graduate, to be telling anybody what to do. But I try to put examples out. Like, you know, that thing that you said to that guy when you're both eight? Like, you just, it's okay that you did it. You're eight. You, what, what do you know? But now that you know, when you have an eight-year-old, just remind your eight-year-old, hey, you know, like the, the kid that no one talks to in class, go, go sit down next to that one and have lunch with him. Like, he's, he's, there's nothing wrong with him that some humanity might not really, really help. And when you see the, the cruelty that is exacted on people, you know, I, I think the Internet gives a, a, a lot of people interconnectivity and insane isolation and the, the capability of being really mean. You know, well, we really need to check ourselves. And when you see how people are like, 
fat shamed or victim blamed or whatever you see day to day on the internet or just in local news. That's just, you do what you want. I'm not, I don't try and get in anyone's way, but that's just not how I'm going to comport myself. And if I had kids and I found out they were doing stuff like that, we would definitely be having a talk. And you, are you trying to pull this all together somehow in your shows or is this just? Well, I just, you know, I don't, there's a thing I've been talking about almost nightly on stage is like when the female child says to mom and dad, I don't want to be a she and a her. I want to be a they and a them. And the parents roll their eyes and go, oh, they're all doing it. Maybe, they, and I say, maybe they are tired of walking to school with a carload of men, you know, a, a, an aged 12-year-old person. They're tired of a car of men slow rolling next to them, enumerating all the things they can get up to in that car. And so being a she and a her is toxic. It's it's nerve-wracking. It it's puke-inducing. And so they've very adroitly gotten away from that, like someone escaping the jaws of a, a shark and said, I'm a they and a them. Like, we are ruining this person's childhood. And so they have jumped out of the way, and they're a they and a them. And the parents aren't listening. Your, your kid is, is performing an amazing bit of societal jujitsu and trying to survive an environment that we have created for this kid. And I don't know exactly what I've done that has contributed to this toxicity, but I cannot divorce myself from thinking I'm part of a problem, and I desperately don't want to be that. So what can I do? And so those kind of things might come out during the show, but not like, hey, adults, here's how you need to live your life, because I'm the last person you want a life lesson from, and I'm the first person who knows that. But um, these are the things that I've been thinking about a lot as I've grown older. And do you find yourself, you know, as you take this show to different cities with different cultural demographics and whatnot, and I ask because Hawaii is a little different from a lot of the U.S., do you find yourself having to alter things kind of on the fly to suit that audience? Um, I've been doing this for so long. I pre-program all of that stuff, and I treat shows in Hawaii like I, I try to be very careful of being in a place that is culturally different than what I'm familiar with. Lest someone think that you're disrespecting, you know, their where they are. And I, I've, I've always. Tr- tried to be very careful and conscious of where I am just in in an attempt to be respectful. And I do not treat Hawaii like I do the the North American continent. And I'm not not saying I I talk slower. Um, I'm just, I'm aware that I'm not in Michigan. And so uh, I wouldn't change things that much but I'm just aware that this isn't Indiana. And so I, I just, and it, it's out of respect of a, a geographical dist, distance from the, what, what they call the mainland. Uh, and, and so I just try to be aware of that so everyone understands they're getting respected. And that's why travel stories are so perfect for what I do, because it's a, we're, neither myself or the audience are in that country at that moment. And so I can kind of hit that middle ground. And 
it, you've kind of touched on this before, but is there any central thing you always, you know, when you hit the stage that you go like, I, I want people to take this away? Yeah, absolutely. There's definite multiple through lines that go through what I do. And since I, you know, started becoming old, what occurs to me more and more is this century has to end better than it began. And that every single person in the audience, and myself included, we have to be part of that good ending. And, you know, tolerance, decency, empathy, you know, uh, those those aspects of hum, human interaction have to come through in the stories. Like it, and because that's how I, I, I work at that every single day, just trying to be better. And that's hopefully uh, that, that comes through. Yeah. Anyway, Henry, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. You got it. I'll see you down the road. And that was Henry Rollins, musician and public radio host, talking with HBR's DJ, Mr. Nick. Rollins' show is called Good to See You at the Blue Note in Waikiki tonight through Saturday evening. We should mention Blue Note is an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. The category is... On the next Fresh Air, Billy Porter, star of the musical Kinky Boots and the FX series Pose. His memoir, now out in paperback, is about growing up black and gay in a church community that insisted he was damned and with a stepfather who sexually abused him. His singing voice was his salvation. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. The new film, The Wind and the Reckoning, is in Oahu Theaters this weekend after it opened the Hawaii International Film Festival last night. The film is set on Kauai in 1893 and tells the story of a Hawaiian cowboy named Ko'olau who contracted leprosy along with his young son and fought against government orders to be exiled to Kalopapa on Molokai. The script is based on the book written by Ko'olau's wife, Pi'ilani, and stars veteran actor Jason Scott Lee as Ko'olau and Kamehameha School's Maui alum, Lindsay Anuhea Watson, as Pi'ilani. The 27-year-old Watson has been cast in a few big roles at the start of her young career, including a starring role in last year's Netflix release, Finding Ohana. Watson paid a visit to our studios this week to talk to The Conversation's Russell Subiano about the film. Ten years ago, did you envision yourself in this place? <laughs> you know, I um, I could only dream ten years ago, but I never knew how close it was going to be. You know, I, I envisioned being somewhere on a movie, on a TV show, but 
never could I actually imagine being able to do Hawaiian rolls. Yeah. That was something, being in this industry, you don't see that. Especially, you know, I made the move to LA and LA, I was playing Hispanic and Native American, uh, Indian, everything else but Hawaiian, but there was no need for it. No one was casting it because no one knew we were there. So I played that role for years. And, you know, again, I was like, oh, book a role. I know I, I work hard. I'm going to get there. But never did I imagine it was going to be two very strong Hawaiian females. And then at that one that even speaks a little Hawaii and the other one that I mean, also Hana and finding Hana also speaks, you know, they, they give her Hawaiian words to teach and is that person. I mean, stories that aren't just like, oh, using Hawaii as a backdrop. They were actual stories about Hawaii and our culture and informing people about that. So that that was never on my radar. So it's crazy to be here. The film is centered around a historical event on Kauai that's come to be known as the Ko'olau Rebellion. The script is based on a firsthand account by Ko'olau's wife, Pi'ilani. Mm-hmm. You play Pi'ilani in the film. How do you prepare to play a historical figure? Yeah, that one was a lot more work than any other role I've ever, you know, a lot of times playing a fictional character, there's a lot more wiggle room to Mm -hmm. kind of be as an actor, create things that aren't there, you know, because I have to, you know, there's nothing to reference. Now, knowing that this is a real person and not only just a real person, this incredible Hawaiian woman who lived this story, you know, you know, we went through the book, we were reading from her own words, Mm -hmm. and then just so much time of just sitting there and kind of Having to think about who she was, you know, using the book, using whatever we had to reference her words. And as an actor, I backstep from there and go, you know, why did she say these things? What were her values? What were her motivations? And coming back to realize, you know, her family was everything, her culture, Hawaii, you know, things like that. And then building from it, the language was a whole nother thing to add into that, you know, and that was a thing that I was like, okay, she's a strong, independent, you know, like, I mean, there weren't even words to describe. Like, you read you read these words that she's written and, and you think about the story she lived, and I was just shook. I mean, you know, for me to have an opportunity to jump into a role like that, that was such a blessing to be able to be. I mean, it was, it was threatening, honestly, as an actor. That's a lot to have to climb into, you know. That's not something that you can just wake up and be like, oh, I'm, I'm Pi'ilani, you know. Mm-hmm. It took time, and that's almost a great part of being in our COVID bubble. I really got to be there. We were like, Jason and I, we were on the Aina. We were, you know, taking our shoes off. We were walking around this property and really kind of settling ourselves into this time and making your mind get back into the 1800s when we're in this modern world where there's so much going on. It's so different. Like, it really gave us this moment of peace that I think helped us both kind of seep back into those characters and see what life was like. And then, obviously, like we said, the real-life COVID thing was just really perfect to just get your mind right in where they were. It yeah. was it was pretty shocking. You talk about Pi'ilani being a very strong, very independent woman. When you were doing the research that you did, was there anything surprising about her that, that kind of popped out or anything that you thought was, was really cool? You know, I mean, I think the whole overall story of her, when you think about the fact that she had no cares about the leprosy with her husband, with her son, with these other Hawaiians they encounter, like, I mean, you think about how this provisional government looked at them like they were trash, like they were disgusting. And this woman could see nothing. Imagine staring in the face of leprosy and just going, I don't care. Love and connection, that outweighs all of that. And 
imagine all of that that she put that much love into these people and in the very end she never got leprosy i mean these people would mask up would stay feet away from them and wouldn't even get close to them and this woman gave all her love all her strength all her effort into them and never contracted it so i was like that's pretty crazy to me that like that just goes to show the will and the strength of who she was who is like that anymore that is willing to give their whole life yeah. for their family so i that's why i knew i was like this is the type of role as an actor and as a hawaiian actor this is incredible you mentioned the dialogue a little bit earlier the dialogue in the film is mostly in Olelo Hawaii, and I talked to David, the director, uh, about a month ago. He said it was in the Ni'ihau dialect as well. Mm-hmm. Was it a challenge for you to learn your lines, especially because it was in the Ni'ihau dialect? I imagine you have background in Olelo yeah. Hawaii, but what about learning just a different dialect? <laughs> you know, the, the whole language itself, it, it's not a simple language to learn. You know, I've told this story a hundred times, you know, I've gone to commitment schools. Mm-hmm. I, I was introduced to the language. I was born and raised in Hawaii. I had, you know, exposure to the language, but nothing quite compares to having to speak the language fluently all while acting at the same time. It was like this whole mashup of a whole lot of things for your brain to process at once. So Jason and I, we both will say we were very stressed in the beginning when we found out about the language because you know we both are from what we know what it's like we are not out here to tell this story to do this story in Olalo Hawaii and do it wrong you know this to me this is one of the first large platform films that's the world's going to see with Olalo Hawaii this much so I don't want someone in Kansas to hear it for the first time and it be wrong and that's Mm -hmm. what they take with them to their friends and family so it was a lot of weight on our shoulders in the beginning and we had to really take a moment to be like can we do this and everyone was so encouraging they're like you guys are Hawaiian this is in in your blood you guys got this and our kumus we each had a kumu on set and we spent hours I mean hours on hours and we only had two weeks of prep to get into this two weeks of prep to learn all this language and not only learn the language memorize the language but to know what you're saying because as an actor I have to follow up with emotions you know, we, we learn chants and only sometimes in school. And, you know, maybe I don't know every word I'm saying, but I can memorize, you know, and I can pronunciate and everything. But having the emotion behind it. And then when Kumu came and layered it with like, and we're going to do it in the Nihau dialect, mm-hmm. I was like, all right, you're testing me. But, you know, that it, it, you know, it wasn't too crazy off of, you know, the normal. I mean, and they could only do so much with us in that short amount of time. So little little moments where they could get us to add in the Nihau dialect was, you know, part of our training. But the whole time it, it, it was a weight on us that was really stressful. But our Kumu's every single day on set with us earpiece in and they were watching every word which i mean we loved because we wanted to do it right you know so if we did a take and we slipped up on something Mm -hmm. they would tell us hey do this you know you know in hawaiian it's not just the language and you know the pronunciation of certain things it's also there's like it's hard to describe but there's like ebb and flow of it there's up and there's down i'll say a line and kumu's like no, 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 you're, you're supposed to go up, down. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know? So uh-huh. it's like, there was a lot about the language that I learned and growing up in Hawaii, I thought I knew, but this is a whole nother level. And you know, the only person in this whole movie that spoke fluently is my son, right? our right. little boy. Right. So, you know, he was like our teacher on set that kept us in line, but it's, it's definitely a feat to learn this language. How do you feel about 
hearing Olelo Hawaii more and more in movies. I'm in my 40s. When I was growing up, I didn't hear Hawaiian spoken in a film until I watched The Ride. Until I watched The Ride. is this indie movie that a local guy made about the surfer in the modern day who knocks out and goes back in time and oh. surfs with Duke Kahanamoku. Oh, man. I can um, Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find. I saw it on, <laughs> on a plane ride when I was coming back home one time on, a, on Hawaiian Air. Oh, no way. And Weldon Kekau Oha, the musician, he spoke Hawaiian in that film. Gotcha. And that was the first time, chicken skin, when I heard it. But now we're hearing it more and more. I talked to Kelly Hu about including Olala Hawaii in Finding Ohana. Mm-hmm. She talked to me about that scene and how she kind of directed that scene. Yeah, she sure did. Coming from your generation, what's it like to be a young Hawaiian seeing Olala Hawaii being spoken in these major films? Yeah, it's crazy for us because, I mean, even for us, we didn't see that things growing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I didn't go to Kamehameha schools, I probably would have had a quarter of the exposure to the language, you know, I, I, I don't even know, I can't even speak for other people who didn't go to Kamehameha schools, that their, you know, relationship with the language is probably almost nothing, you know, besides the day-to-day where we added in, you know, but I don't know many fluent speakers. I went most of my life not knowing any fluent speakers, mm-hmm. you know, if they were a fluent speaker, the only ones we knew were like, oh, our Kumus, right. you know, that's the only person you knew. So seeing movies like this, you know, it's, I'd like to think that we're opening the door because you're seeing so many other ones coming out, you know? I mean, this is almost like 50 to 60% of Olelo Hawaii in this movie, which, you know, we didn't sprinkle it in. Like, we made the decision. Yeah. If if there is a Hawaiian talking to a Hawaiian at that time, especially in a situation like this, they would have spoke Olelo Hawaii. They would not have spoken English, you know? So that's why we made this commitment to this movie, to history, to be accurate to it. That, mm-hmm. And not only that, because... Yes, we want to preserve this language. We, we've we talked to our Kumus and, you know, they tell us the history of like at one point, you know, our language was illegal and then it had a little bit of moment to come back, but it's struggling to come mm-hmm. back. So seeing these movies and from my point of view as an actor and being in this industry, that is my goal is like through what I love to do through my job, you know, if I can put in the work to make sure that our language is preserved in a film yeah. and it can live forever, you know, cause film lives forever. That's what we're doing. And if this motivates the next generation or the past generations or people outside of Hawaii to learn the language, to bring it back, I think that's what's exciting about film for me, that you see a movie like this, it makes you feel something. And then yeah. the language, like you said, chicken skin, because that's what everyone keeps telling us. I don't think any Hawaiian really thinks about it till it's right there in their face on this big screen, that thing that we all like dream of. We love TV, we love film, you know, it it feels like home. And then now seeing faces that are Hawaiian like you and then speaking the language, it's a whole, it's a whole moment that I think a lot of people are gonna feel that overwhelming feeling when they see it. So knowing that we get to do that and we're bringing the language to the screen and so many other directors, Hawaiian actors are doing that. I mean, we listen to everyone else's languages around the world, and we love it, and we support it. So bringing that back to us, finally giving us Hawaiians, Polynesians, a moment to finally get to celebrate our own language, our own culture. Oh, it feels so great. It feels great. I'm I'm glad I'm an actress in this time, honestly. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming in and talking story with me. Thank you. That was Native Hawaiian actress Lindsay Anuhea Watson talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Watson stars in the film The Wind and the Reckoning, which will be playing at Consolidated Ward Theaters on Oahu today through Sunday. 
General election ballots are in the mail. Need help studying up on the candidates and issues? HPR is here to help. Check out our free voter guide at hawaiipublicradio.org slash vote. When people think of Christine Baranski, they think of sophistication. And that's no accident. When I got to Juilliard, I kind of sounded like a girl from the Midwest with a very nasal voice. (laughs) I hardly sounded like this. The Good Fight actor on her rise to the top of the call sheet. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. filmmaker Ken Burmeyer is on a high. 30 Years of Aloha is a documentary short that he just learned won an award at the Shanghai Film Festival. He released it just six months ago and it screened in Europe and picked up scores of other awards. Here's a clip from the trailer. Welcome to Honokahua. We come together to celebrate our culture. We come to celebrate and honor the Iwi at Honokahua, a place where Hawaiian culture becomes so important and so alive. We need to respect our kupuna. Coming here and celebrating is a good way to celebrate our ancestors. And when I come, I take my flutes, which I make, and I go down to where our kupuna are buried, and I play for them. Rejuvenate, educate, share, camaraderie. If you have that every day in your life, 30 years is a blink of an eye. We talked to Burmeyer recently about the World Win Wins, documenting a community event showcased at the Ritz-Carlton Resort on Maui over the course of three decades. Actually, the first award was from Berlin, the Berlin Indie Shorts Film Festival. We got an email, and you get your official selection to go through that whole process, and then it was like a week later, oh, by the way, you guys won. You know, <laughs> we won at the Berlin Film Festival. That was really exciting, and then... It just kind of started happening in Rome. They do the Masters in Cinema Film Festival, and they selected the film, and we won there. And then it went on to Turkey Film Festival, and we won an award there. And then just last week, we got the notice from Shanghai that we were selected. And a few days later, they said, oh, by the way, you guys just won our Shanghai Short Film Festival, and you won the Silver Trophy Award. So pretty exciting. They sent a whole big picture of the beautiful award. So we thought, oh, we better just share this with our... Ohana here in Hawaii. So talk about the number of entrants in the Shanghai Film Festival. There was over 800 films, and they selected ours. And, you know, we're lucky enough to win an award. So it's pretty exciting to be you know, recognized in Asia. It seems like the world is really embracing our film, 30 Years of Aloha. And we've also were selected recently at the Cannes World Film Festival, Paris, 
Film Festival, London, Rotterdam, Stockholm, Palm Springs, and it looks like the Big Island Made in Hawaii Film Festival. They're really interested, so bring it back home for that. And then the Celebration of the Arts, where we actually filmed the whole concept, you know, the celebration they've been doing for many years, working with Clifford Naole, who puts it all together, brings in all these wonderful Hawaiian artists from hula to chant to woodmakers workshops and saving the environment and being focused on, you know, Hawaiian culture. It's how we put it all together and and it looks like we'll probably do a homecoming here on Maui at that Celebration of the Arts, which is usually held in April every year around Easter. Well, and share with our listeners, so you've been involved with this for, what, 30 years now? Yeah, I've been filming there, doing a lot of TV news segments over the years and then a lot of their TV commercials and we just always document some stuff and we'd always send stuff to the TV news stations. And then we also have a Hawaii on TV internet network that we've had on for about 15 years. And we put segments there. We give it to the Ritz-Carlton, and they put it out to their marketing staff and, you know, spread it all over the place. And different news organizations always pick it up. So we've been doing that a long time. And I've just really been blessed working with a lot of past films. You know, won an Emmy with my Keola Beamer Kihualu film, which aired nationally on PBS. It won about 15 film festivals around the world. And I did Anti-Nona Beamer's. Malamako Aloha film about her that went all over the world and aired on national TV. And, you know, it's just been a great, fun adventure, you know, doing it. A lot of work. But when you get accepted at these film festivals like this, it's a short, independent film, but it's like our little Hawaiian film that could, you know? And being embraced around the world right now, it's, it's really nice sharing Aloha. You know, you hear that a lot, but when you take this on the road and it really touches people's hearts about, you know, what Hawaii is all about. I mean, that must make you feel really gratified. Oh, yes. It makes my heart really fly, you know, it soars. And even our whole, you know, team and, and all the artists that are involved in the film, they love it too, you know. Everyone gets something from it. You know, it's, it's like we're not taking anything away. We're giving aloha. You know, that's the way we were raised, you know. So we keep doing it, and the world keeps embracing it, which is really, uh, it's really, it's really beautiful. It really is. And so tell us about, let's say, your first experience with uh, Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian music and and dance. You know, I'm I'm indigenous myself on my mom's side, Native American, Mexican, you know, Hopi, Navajo. So I got a real real true connection. And, you know, I've been doing section in Hawaii for over 40 years, you know, working directly with Hawaiians. I've done over about 25 Hawaiian documentary films over the years. And just meeting and being accepted and, you know, sharing Everything with all my friends and in the culture has really been enlightening for me, and it's changed my life. You know, the Hawaiian culture it means so much because it's, you know, it, there's so many stories, and there's so many that still left to be told. You know, it's almost endless. You know, from the hula to the music to slacky ukulele. You know, the, the food, the arts. You know, the whole culture. And I just hope that, you know, I've been a vessel to spread that. What are your plans for taking this film around the globe? I mean, you've done a pretty good job, you know, in Europe and Asia, but... Yeah, we're still out there. It's, we've got a lot of several other invitations already to submit it, and we've been doing it. So it's just going to keep going. And i got another film out there right now. It's a Hawaiian Spiritual Guardians about the Amakua, which that's been all over the world, and it's won several awards. It's premiered like 30 film festivals. And this is all... We released these right at COVID time, you know, and then 30 Years of Aloha just came out in the last six months, and this is all blossomed for this little film about the celebration of the arts. So, you know, we're going to just keep going, putting our stuff out there and creating stories 
that makes sense and shares what the Hawaiian culture is about. I really, truly love that. I've done been involved with three movies at Sundance and done all that. We've won Sundance before, won an Emmy with my Killa Beamer film and, you know, things like that. But it's always gratifying doing projects like this. And we did this pretty much with no budget. You know, I pretty much that. You know, we're doing interviews with everybody and put it all together. And then we decided, hey, we got enough here outside of a news story. Just let's do a little documentary. Lo and behold, uh, 30 Years of Aloha has blossomed. And right now, with all the footage we collected, kind of a work in progress style is going to do the Hawaiian breath of aloha. And while I was there, I talked with so many of the uh, artists about what the breath of aloha really truly is to them and what aloha is. So that is kind of phasing this into maybe a feature-length documentary that we're currently actually in the, editing it right now, and I'm still gathering interviews and I just interviewed Danny Akaka and his wife over on the Big Island at my Big Island Jazz and Blues Festival and, and John Keave and, you know, and people like that just trying to get more footage about what Aloha is all about. So, you know, it, it just keeps to keep going like the domino. We're there and we're blessed with that. Hey, you know, we can make this in a longer version and, and here we go. Well, do you have any advice for, let's say, you know, budding filmmakers? You know, just follow your heart. Just do it. You know, I went to, like, CU Film School, and I worked at some TV stations back, you know, a long time ago. And I'll tell you, when I was at CU Film School, our, our teacher told us, professor, you know, you guys really want to do this. You should take all your money and just go fly out to L.A. and live there and go to the director and give him, hey, here's all my money I'm going to spend over the next four years. You can have it all. Just show me the ropes. And, you know, a few of us took that seriously, and I left film school. Several of my buddies did, and, and we just went and just did it. So, you know, truly just do it and follow your heart and, you know, just have the belief in yourself. I'm amazed at the quality of productions that I've seen that are just shot with an iPhone. It just amazes me. It, it is. I'll tell you what. I come from the school. We used to have old three-quarter inch and beta cams, and those things yes. were like 40 pounds. Those are heavy. And, and we would go on shoots. We would have to take, like, 30 guys, and we would fly in somewhere. We'd have, like, 80 bags we'd have to check. Now you can go anywhere with your little phone, or and we now we shoot with DSLRs. They're so small and compact, and the quality is exceptional. So you know everybody's a filmmaker these days. Anyone with an iPhone, you're a filmmaker. It seems like so it's that kind of world. Yeah, but you just found your passion and you're being true to it. Yeah, yes, yes, I am. Some people, you know, I, hey, you're crazy. You do what are you doing? And I think you know what, we're just doing it. We're gonna make this film about this. You know. And we did, you know, we did some really different projects, like, you know, the Hawaiian Canoe Club. They went over to Kahulavi, so I did a great little short documentary on that, which went to film festivals. Uh, the Five Fishermen at Hana, the, you know, Sarah Joe, Hana remembers her son. These fishermen were lost at sea, and no one did a little film documentary. So we did that, and it kind of went out to the world as well. So there's so many stories, and we're just scratching the surface. And even well, though I've been doing it for 30 years, there's just so many more to do. That was Maui filmmaker Ken Burmeyer talking about 30 Years of Aloha, a compilation of three decades of a culture and arts event held at the Maui Ritz-Carlton Hotel. For this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we move into the final days of the general election. 
Share your hopes and fears for the future. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post comments on Facebook or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can listen back to our shows on our website. Our programs produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.